Presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. We are back on the air after taking last Saturday night off. Uh, why? Because we were scared to death of the tropical storm. It started raining cats and dogs, and, and we felt there was no way in heck we were driving all the way from you know, the armpit of Massachusetts uh, here to the spooky studios. And then, as it turns out, it was really nothing. Nothing to be afraid of. It was not the whopper that we expected it to be. But that's okay, because apparently Jeff Belanger, who was supposed to be our, our scheduled guest last week, he, he came into the studio, and he toughed it out. And he's been waiting here all week for us to get here. But now we finally arrived, and, and Jeff Belanger is with us. How are you tonight, Jeff? I'm great. Thank God you're here. Yeah, did, were you getting kind of bored without us? It was uh, it was a little boring without yeah. you, but it's good to be here now, and uh, it's a beautiful Saturday night under a full moon, and we really couldn't ask for much more except uh, a nicer studio. <laughs> Which we, you and I have experienced, actually. That's right, it's we a, have. It's far nicer. But uh, this is your first trip to the to the spooky studio, and it's, it's great to have you here. You're always welcome here. Thank you. And, uh, of course, if any of the Jeff Belanger groupies want to come down, we have the big glass windows. Uh, <laughs> the, the blinds are open, so you can see Jeff uh, here in person. Yes. Uh, Mom, that does not mean you. And uh, Just putting that out there. And, uh, of course, he'll, uh, he'll be happy to sign copies of... Uh, of uh, Chris Bo- Chris Balzano's new book, Picture Yourself Ghost Hunting. <laughs> That's right. Pe- people frequently get you guys confused. I've noticed. Uh, I get emails from people saying, you know, when does Jeff Balzano's new book come out? And, uh, oh man, good for Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, uh, but we are here actually to talk about your new forthcoming book, uh, tied into tonight's theme. Tonight we're going to talk about the paranormal and the presidency, with uh, the election looming uh, in just a few months here. And uh, Barack Obama and John McCain going head to head. They're in the news, you know, for a, a variety of different topics every day. Every but the day. one that's kind of gotten pushed back to the to the back burner a little bit was the UFO discussion. That was really big earlier in the campaign because of uh, the different announcements that were being made by Fife Symington and, and Dennis Kucinich and all these things that came up. And we actually talked a few months ago with uh, Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group. Well, uh, w- while we talked to Steve, uh, Grant Cameron joined us on the phone to talk about his website, presidentialufo.com. He's going to come back now with us uh, tonight to talk about some of the UFO tie-ins with the Oval Office. But Jeff is here to talk about his new book, and that is Who is Haunting the White House? The <laughs> I got the title here. Yeah, go ahead. The, the President's Mansion and the Ghosts Who Live There. Oh, that was wonderful. Almost perfect. It's, yeah. No, th- w- what's cool about this, this is my first book for the children's market, actually. And um, I'm actually calling it uh, Ages 10 and Up, so you can buy it, too, as can Matt Costa, where, where not the, We fall in the up. Right. You're, you fall in the up category. And I, I, I started this uh, years ago, actually. I um, I had the idea. I've, I've written about the Ghosts of the White House before, but I really thought this would be a, a really cool kids book 
And I called the White House and I said, hey, you know, I want to write a book about the ghosts there and things like that. And they said, you know, we're just, we're not really interested. And I said, but I want to use the ghostly legends as kind of an innovative way to teach history. And they said, go on. And uh, that kind of started the discussion with the help of my uh, my congressman, believe it or not. Uh, uh, congressman Neal uh, made some phone calls and, and got me in down there. And uh, and then some smooth talking by yours truly. I actually got to go down. I got to take the, the regular tour, but I also got to interview some of the staff. And it was so cool to be there. Uh, just, I mean, forget if, if ghosts are real or not real. When you stand in the White House, when you stand in that the, the North Portico, and when you walk into the foyer, and I mean, every single president in the history of the United States has stood where you're standing. Uh, you know, Washington died before it was complete, but he was there for the laying of the cornerstone, and I'm sure checked in more than once on, uh, you know, during the construction. But it's just a powerful place. I mean, everybody walked there. It's 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 an amazing feeling. And uh, first, uh, I went on the tour, and, and I'm talking to some of the Secret Service agents. You have to realize there's no cameras or anything like that in the White House. Mm-hmm. It's all Secret Service agents. This is a private residence. This is a, a place where heads of state come to visit and things like that. And so the Secret Service agents, they know everything. I mean, they, they're pointing to, you know, hey, who painted that? It was painted by so-and-so in 1843. How old is this rug? 1994, brought in by the Clintons. The other one was getting ratty. This table was made in, you know, Chesapeake, Virginia. They knew everything. And I, and I just kind of chimed in, and I said, well, what do you know about ghosts here? And he said, well, sir, we understand there's a British redcoat seen near the North Portico, and uh, Abraham Lincoln's ghost has been seen near the Lincoln bedroom upstairs. And he said it in the same tone of voice where he's talking about, you know, the painting, the carpet, the, the table, and all this other stuff. And I went, oh, my God, is this kind of like federal recognition of the existence of ghosts? Because if so, you know, this is pretty cool. It's, it's probably as close as you're going to get. It, absolutely. Well, but then I got to interview some of the staff, and that was much cooler. And, and what was great is I got to talk to the boss. And the boss, for uh, those who think it's the president, it's most certainly not. Uh, the boss is the chief usher. And that's who uh, all the employees of the White House, about a hundred roughly, report to. These are the, the the porters, the cleaning crew, the uh, you know the foreman, the janitor, all the everybody that takes care of that building, that museum, the grounds, all of it, report to the chief usher. And uh, the gentleman I spoke to, Gary Walters, actually served every single president since 1967, right up through 2007 when he retired. So everyone from Nixon to Bush, the son, and uh, I mean. Just, I mean, if you think about it, this man has spent more time in the White House than any president ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, at best you get two terms, and, you know, that's it, and you're not there all the time anyway. Uh, this guy's been there day and night, weekends and everything else for events and functions and things like that, uh, and he's had his own experiences. Um, he wasn't ready to make the leap that it was a ghost, but he did say, you know, I was walking through with one of the police officers, and uh, this door kind of closed by itself. And while, you know, in the world of paranormal, that's not the most groundbreaking evidence that we've ever heard. But you have to realize, in the White House, nothing's supposed to happen in or outside that building without it being, you know, checked and double-checked, without it, without a lot of people knowing about it. Uh, so that was interesting. But then there's a lot of other stories from some of the staff. Uh, you know, one gentleman said he was going upstairs on the second floor to turn on the lights one morning. And there was Lincoln sitting outside the Lincoln bedroom uh, with his legs crossed, looked right at him, and then disappeared. And, you know, the thing about, you know, when you're walking in a historic building, I mean, who knows? Maybe we've seen ghosts. Maybe we see someone walk by and and, and we just don't know it was a ghost. Mm-hmm. But we know what Lincoln looks like. <laughs> He's on our money. You know, pull out a $5 bill or, you know. I, I can't. Yeah, right. Well, or... <laughs> Poor radio host, no money. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, five Washingtons don't e- equal a Lincoln, I guess. But, uh, but that's you know that's the thing. We know exactly what this guy looks like. Uh, you know, he's a historic figure. His 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 face is you know 
part of our collective conscious. And I mean, isn't that isn't that amazing? And now we, keep in mind, the Lincoln bedroom was never his bedroom. It was once the executive office before mm-hmm. the additions of the East and West Wing. And actually, if you consider the White House was gutted in the 1950s because it was completely falling apart inside. I mean, there's not a lot of original construction aside from the outer walls and things like that. Uh, lots of furniture and, and pieces inside. But that building just holds so much history and, and so many ghosts. I mean, Lincoln isn't the only one. And uh, you start looking through through some of the old presidential diaries and journals and things like that. And there's I've, the earliest reference I found to a ghost was actually Mary Todd Lincoln uh, talking about how her son, Willie, who died of a typhoid-like disease inside the White House, um, came to her at night in the White House. And so that was the first... Um, that was the first, she wrote about it in letters and things like that. But then a little boy's ghost comes up again and again a few other times. There's a, a military aide named uh, Archibald Butt who, uh, who served in the, the first few years of the 1900s who wrote about in his memoirs how uh, some of the staff of the White House were spooked by a ghostly child. Now, they didn't make the connection to Willie Lincoln, mm-hmm. but they did say there was a ghost of a little boy lurking. Um, so, I mean, uh, Truman referenced the ghost something like six or seven times in his letters and writing. Um, Jimmy Carter's daughter had a seance in the in the Lincoln bedroom. Uh, Ronald Reagan mentioned during uh, like a, a, a an exchange with the press that his little dog would bark wildly outside the Lincoln bedroom and then you know run away from it. He was always spooked by the Lincoln bedroom. Other staff members of the White House have talked about you know seeing the chandelier swing and the lights going on and off in there. I mean you know the electricity's okay now. That you got to. You have to assume that those kind of things are checked and double-checked, uh, sure, yeah. considering it's the White House. So the stories just go on and on, and those are the ones we're hearing about. I mean, how many don't we know about? Well, it, obviously the Lincolns are kind of uh, they're kind of like the, the peak of presidential paranormal anything, because if you look at both Abraham Lincoln and his wife Mary Todd, I mean, they, they're, they were spiritual people in that sense of they were connected to, to this other side. We, we've done a whole episode where we talked about the psychic life of Abraham Lincoln and the, the precognitive dreams that he had and right. the, the fact that he kind of experienced his own ghostly encounters. He, he saw his son often, whether or not it was you know within the White House walls, but he, he did encounter him often. And, and they just seem to be a little bit more attuned than most other people are. Maybe the fact when Abraham Lincoln died, that kind of really kicked off this and kind of really pushed it so that even these spirits that were there before, because I've read reference, and I, I don't know if it's if it was, it's kind of third-hand information, but I've read reference of uh, Mary Todd encountering uh, John Tyler, uh, encountering uh, Harrison, you know, like these, these different spirits that have been wandering around in there. Do you think that maybe the fact that once the Lincolns did get there and they kind of brought spiritualism of the time into the White House that oh, that yeah. kind of amplified things and, and kind of got the ball rolling. Well, I mean, you can talk to some of the some of the staff that work there today and they'll tell you that I mean, it's it's a known fact that the Lincolns were holding séances in the White House. Um, we know we know Abraham Lincoln attended at least one of them because he paid a bit of a political price for it. It got into the papers and and people were saying, "What's this crazy president doing?" You know, mm-hmm. b- meeting with uh, you know, spiritualists and psychics and things like that. So, uh, so we know he did it. I mean, the Reagans were known for meeting with numerologists and you know, astrologers and things like that. I mean, and that's just the stuff we're hearing about. Um, I have to believe. You know, um, Hillary Clinton had even mentioned how you know, yeah, sometimes it was kind of a spooky place. That's all she said. I actually, I tried to get an interview with her uh, when I was working on this book years ago. This is before she was running for uh, for the presidency and uh, 
unfortunately, the, the interview was denied. So a lot of what I had to go on was uh, interviewing the current staff um, and then the, the presidential libraries, which are just a wealth of information. Um, George Bush, the dad, actually, I, I uh, had to file a Freedom of Information Act for um, a reference to ghosts. I called the library. It, these libraries, these presidential libraries, are m- incredible resources. They keep every document that was ever during that presidency. I said, I'm looking for anything that references ghosts or hauntings in the White House. And he said, you know, I have two, but you'd have to file a Freedom of Information Act to, to get them. And so I did. And um, one of them, it was, I can't believe this was classified, but they did declassify it for me. It was a letter that uh, uh, George Bush had written to a, an, an author, uh, the name escapes me right now, who had come to, to give a, a talk on, the, on American history. And he said, the letter said something like, you know, maybe the White House is really haunted or, you know, it's the, the applause is still thundering and reverberating throughout the building um, from the lecture you gave. So it was kind of like a compliment that referenced the ghosts in some way. And it was classified. <laughs> now now that's now that's leaked out to the world. So, uh, <laughs> Well, and the, the thing, too, is with these presidential libraries, I mean, they have people whose sole job it is is to help you find this, this information. Yeah. Did it seem, when you called the libraries and made these requests, did it seem like kind of a out-of-left-field thing for them to feel? Older. You wouldn't believe how helpful they were. I mean, n- not at all. I've got um, the Truman Library was amazing down in Texas. The librarian sent me photocopies of the actual journal entries, and actually some of them are in the book, um, where you can actually see Truman's writing saying, sure is shooting, this place is haunted. Uh, you know, th- he was he was an amazing resource and, and very helpful. Th- the thing was, what made this book a little different than some of the other projects I've worked on is I, I really wanted to focus on, like, you know, hey, Ghosts are ghosts are a lot of things to a lot of people. They're a way to teach history. You know, the, the, it's the past demanding that we don't forget it. And I think that's one way to approach it is to say, well, you know, who is who is Harry Truman? Mm-hmm. You know, who was Abraham Lincoln? We know there are ghosts, and that's interesting. That's intriguing. But to learn who they were, that takes an investigation. We have to go back in time, and that's the whole point of the book. The book is is kind of like a, a ghost tour for kids to go back in time to discover who these people were, to discover why they might still be hanging around. Yeah, I mean, who they were as, as people and as presidents is kind of you know, the reason why they might be a ghost there. I mean, like, uh, you know, if you die in office, then you might be more likely to hang around the White House. Or, <laughs> you know, if you're somebody like FDR who gave so much of his, his time and energy uh, in his terms, you know, then you might be more likely to be attached to that place just because of how much effort you put in while you were there sure well you know you look at lincoln who is absolutely the most prominent ghostly figure in the white house hands down nobody no president ever had a harder presidency than lincoln mm-hmm. nobody i mean the nation's at war with itself you know hundreds of thousands of people dying on your own soil nation ripped apart he was trying to preserve the union nobody's had a tougher time uh, you know i don't think you could make even a close argument for for anyone else um, not World War One, not World War Two, not Vietnam, not nine eleven. That was that was the the biggest test of a president. And you're right, he was in tune spiritually. Uh, he gave everything. He gave his life, you know, mm-hmm. for for his country. And uh, he, well, I mean, if anyone is going to still hang around, why not Lincoln? You know, I mean, and I think presidents know that. Presidents know when when you go there, when when you when you serve as president. Uh, I remember seeing an interview with George Bush, the dad, talking about the power of the, that chair, the power of the Oval Office, uh, just being there. I mean, there's there's a there's a history to the building that resonates, and and it, I think it adds gravity to the job of being president. 
um, that you, you realize that there's there's some amazing people that have come before you to do this, and some gave it all. Um, and, and so th- that spirit of Lincoln, you know, whatever you're going through, you know, whatever crisis you're dealing with, Lincoln had it harder. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe he is over your shoulder, you know, saying, hey, it's going to be okay. And, and one of the strange things I, I thought about when, when I was reading these books about Lincoln is, um, you know, so many of these other presidents, they came from privilege. And so when they come to the White House, it's just it's as opulent as it is and as wonderful as it is as, as a mansion sure. and as a home. It's, you know, it's just another step in the process of them of a, of a pretty charmed life all the way around. But Lincoln came from nothing. Right. I mean, he came from a little ramshackle log cabin. So if this is kind of like the ultimate for him, then, you know, maybe he would stick around anyway, just because if you're going to haunt a place, why not haunt the nice place? Yeah, right. Yeah. The nicest place he ever lived. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and there's, but there's a, uh, I'll tell you, man, you, I wouldn't want to live there. I wouldn't want that job. Um, you, you realize going through that place, you know, what a, what an amazing thing it is. And, and I also had a new appreciation for the Secret Service, for the staff of the place. The White House. I asked the chief usher. I said, "You know, this is kind of an aside, but I think it relates anyway." I said, "I'm going to assume that you didn't vote for the guy who won every single time, so you have to serve someone who you didn't vote for, you know. And even if you did vote for the person, I'm going to assume they're going to do something along the way that's really going to upset you, that you're mm-hmm. going to disagree with. And how do you bring that person coffee? You know, how do you you know look at them and smile and you go, oh my god, you know? And and I realized." You know, the Secret Service would never take a bullet for George Bush. They would never take a bullet for Bill Clinton. They take a bullet for the presidency, and that's that's who the staff serves. The staff serves the presidency. You know, the way it was explained to me is, you've got the you've got the premier of Russia over. You've got the president of Russia. I can make sure his favorite vodka's here. The meals he likes are here. Uh, you know, that if someone's Jewish, that we've got a good kosher meal for him, and that everything is perfect and comfortable. So when those doors close everybody's at, at ease as they can be to discuss what happens. After that, I've done all I can. And then it's up to the, the two men in the room or however many people are in the room. And and I said, wow, you know, I, I, I got it. I, I kind of mm-hmm. got it after talking to them that they're serving their country and they're serving the presidency. I don't, I, I, they can't possibly watch the news. They can't possibly pay attention. They just serve their country that way. And it's very noble. Oh, it absolutely is, and and to be these stewards of history that they are, even on a minute level. I mean, you can be somebody as simple as the guy who goes in and bakes the muffins in the morning, right? But the fact that you're there for history every day and that you're part of it, and who knows, you know, if George Bush doesn't get his favorite blueberry muffin in the morning and he gets a little ticked off, maybe right. he kicks off a war. It's, <laughs> That's it's right. your fault. It could be that simple. You're right. And some of these folks, some of the the butlers and things, they're like third generation White House employees, and uh, you know, again. The ghostly legends go back so far that the stories get passed down. I think presidents know when they move in. I mean, Obama, McCain, they had to have heard it by now. I mean, everybody's heard it. Everybody's heard about the ghost of the White House. As you mentioned earlier, there's there's a section on the WhitehouseGov uh, website about their ghosts. We pay for that website. You, me, <laughs> Matt, and Matt. You know, like that's our tax dollars. And it's all video stuff too. It's not even printed stories. It's no, all like video recollections. Yeah, there's like they've they've put some time in about their ghosts, and um, you know. So I, I'm hoping you know maybe if this book uh, starts making the rounds here in the next month, uh, I've already I've already said publicly I will promise my vote to either candidate if they uh, offer me a night in the Lincoln bedroom, which uh, I think is a pretty fair trade actually. I'd say so. I mean, you know, it's a vote. Absolutely. Vote. And Not could, a lot of Americans vote. The way this election's going, it could come down to that one. Could, that's it. That's what I'm saying. 
So uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll talk more about the new book, Who is Haunting the White House, the President's Mansion and the Ghosts Who Live There, as well as some of the ghostly legends surrounding the White House. If you would like to chime in, uh, ask some questions, or share some stories you might have heard about the White House ghosts, give us a call, 508-996-0500, We will be right back with more here on the Paranormal Presidency Night on Spooky South Coast. Spooky South Coast is back. The uh, category tonight, uh, top ten signs there's a ghost in the White House. What now? What, what is Oh, this? my God. In an interview in Texas Monthly Magazine, Jenna Bush, yeah. one of the lovely uh, Bush lovely twins, twins yeah, yeah. Uh, admits to hearing ghosts in the White House. Ghosts in the White House. Yes. Top ten signs now that... Number ten, White House staffers have sensed a cold presence that's not Condoleezza. Thank you. Number nine... Rattling chains and agonized screams make the place sound like Gitmo. Uh, number eight. Someone's been reading the intelligence memos. Number seven. Mysterious force keeps pulling Secretary of the Interior Dirk Kimthorne's pants down. Dirk Kimthorne. Dirk Kimthorne, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, number six. Bush looks scared even when he's not looking at poll numbers. Number five. Halliburton has offered a $3 billion contract to the Ghost Whisperer. Number four, medical documentation proves Cheney's been dead since 96. Uh, Number three, actually with Bush on vacation every two weeks, it's like having a ghost in the White House. Am I right, Uh, number two, Laura saw Saddam Hussein wearing underpants and eating Doritos. Well, that's not, that's not right. And the number one sign there's a ghost in the White House, a mysterious banging and moaning noises in Oval Office, but Bubba ain't there. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and Jeff Belanger is here in the Spooky studio with us as well. He's the author of numerous books, but the new one is called Who is Haunting the White House, the President's Mansion, and the Ghosts Who Live There. And you said that'll be available in a couple of weeks still? Or? Yeah, I just got my first copy, which is uh, I'm excited about. But yeah, it should be on the shelves in just maybe two, three weeks. But of course, you can pre-order them now on ghostvillage.com. Right, pre-order them on Amazon. Uh, go into your favorite bookstore, let them know you want a copy. I know um, yeah, the, 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 the pre-orders have been really great, so the publisher's excited. Uh, I mean, it's an election year, it's Halloween season, so it's, it's kind of a slam dunk for, uh, for, for talking about this particular subject, which is, which is great. And uh, I'd love it, seriously, I would love to see either McCain or Obama, preferably both, um, at least give some kind of nod to that, uh, that they might be moving into a haunted house if they win. If they hold up the book, that only helps. Oh, if they could hold up the book, that would help a lot. <laughs> now, but I, I do want to ask you, I mean, you've written numerous books, but uh, uh, what kind of a different process is it writing a children's book? Because you would think, you know, if you're just an, an average person, you think, oh, well, writing a kid's book's got to be easier, but I can imagine it's much more of a challenge. Yeah, it's harder. It's really harder because, you know, if you, you can't, you got to be so to the point all the time. Uh, kids don't let you get away with anything um, when, when it comes to storytelling and, and, and reading. And I had a great editor who helped me with this immensely. But seriously, I, I, when you're you don't have as many words to work with. First of all, mm-hmm. so I mean, as a writer, you know, sometimes you'd rather have two thousand, three thousand words to tell a story than eight hundred words because it's yeah. yeah it's, ask my editors about that. But but you know what I mean? Because then then you really I mean, what what's the most important points to make? How do I always you know 
keep them glued. You have to punch. You know, you have to make it a lot more punchy than you do with adults. Adults will let you get away with, uh, you know, kind of expanding on ideas for a little while. Mm-hmm. Kids don't get to it and get to the next point. And um, and and which is, I mean, that's good for any writer. You don't want to you don't want to meander, but at the same time, you just you have to be succinct. And um, which which kind of is a pretty decent segue to uh, another project that I have coming up in the next week. And that's a, a website for kids called kids.ghostvillage.com that'll be launching in just a couple of days, and it's there to uh, kind of for for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's really the first web resource for the paranormal for children, specifically aimed at children. Where number one, we we want a section for parents, you know, to help parents who are dealing with a haunting, either you know how to talk to your ghosts, uh, how to talk to your kids about your, your ghosts, <laughs> and talk to your ghosts about your kids. Sure. Um, how to ghost hunt with your kids. There's a section for junior ghost hunters, for kids who want to get out there and do some investigating, you know, preferably with their parents, you know, getting permission and things like that, um, you know, how to go about it and, and get started. And then kind of a place to, to have this, you know, expand the discussion, resources, books on the topic, and then using ghosts in the classroom. You know, one of the ideas, one of the reasons I got the ideas for this kid's book was uh, years ago someone came up to me with one of my regular books for adults and said you know i use this in the classroom to to teach history it it really keeps the kids glued and i went oh my god that's just a great idea and uh, i talked to a place um actually i talked to a fort calgary in calgary alberta canada and it's one of these um kind of preserved forts you know where people dress in period costume kind of like a living museum Mm -hmm. they're all over the place got a few of them down around here sure yeah old sturbridge village and sturbridge you know places like that um and they've got a few haunted legends in the Dean House specifically, but uh, there's a f- there's a few other ghostly legends around the park. And I was talking to one of the docents there, uh, who said, "Yeah, you know, we were getting inundated by these kids asking us about the ghost. Tell us about the ghost. Tell us about the ghost." And so at, at first, what they did was they said, "All right, if you pay attention to the tour, we'll talk about the ghost at the end." So it was kind of like a carrot to dangle in front of them. Mm-hmm. But then I think they got even smarter, and they incorporated the ghost right into the tour. They said, "Okay, let's start with the ghost. You know, there's." We've seen this old man walking right here. We've seen this woman, you know, dressed this way, standing, you know, over in this room. Now let's talk about who they were. And you, you've you've now got their brains opened up. You know, you've got children's minds opened. Like they're excited, they're titillated, they're intrigued at the notion of ghosts and standing where ghosts have been seen. And now they're going to learn something. Whereas before, if you just threw a bunch of names, facts, and figures at them, it's just not going to stick. There's an old saying that history is a damn good story. It just needs damn good telling. And ghosts offer us a way to do that, and uh, so that's one of the things I'm excited about. Is just trying to put out there that you know, there's there's many uses for our ghosts. Uh, it's a discussion about the afterlife. It's a discussion about our. It's a way to kind of comprehend our own inevitable fate. We're all going to die, but it's also a way to uh, to teach. But you're also going to encounter some people who will still be of that mindset of, well, you don't want to tell kids about ghosts. Mm-hmm. Tell kids that ghosts aren't real. And you're kind of shutting that down right away. Are you going to address that with the website as well? Here's the thing. I recognize that some people just, it's not for everybody, you know. Um, but one of the things that I address on the website is that, you know, the discussion's already been started, whether you like it or not. Turn on your television, go to a website, go to the go to the bookstore. There's television shows, all these other medias out, you know, this radio show, telling people, hey, ghosts are real, people are encountering encountering them all over the place this is the kind of things that are happening so kids you know kids are already getting the message that they're real and i don't know when did you first get interested in the paranormal very young i was nine ten playing with a ouija board looking for ghosts in my friend's 250 year old house uh you know 
kids already believe in this stuff. Kids already have the notion that, well, you know, I know I've been told ghosts aren't real, but I kind of don't believe it. And I think as we get to be adults, we get the same way, where we may have been told as kids, yeah, don't worry about it, ghosts aren't real. My parents didn't tell me anything either way. They didn't say they were real. They didn't say they weren't real. You know, um, they just kind of let me figure it out. And they said there's all kinds of things in the world we don't fully understand yet. And that's the approach. If if parents want to go about it and say, hey, they're not real, hey, I'm not going to tell anybody how to raise their kid. But they're perceived as real by an awful lot of people. And even worse, what if you're a parent who maybe you didn't believe in ghosts, but all of a sudden you move into a house and something's going wrong. You know, something seems off. And now you're becoming a believer. You know, I, I, I've got an article that will be going up uh, tomorrow, actually, that's that's going to address that. How do you, first of all, how do you discuss it as a family? Because you know as an investigator, and I'm sure you've talked to other investigators, a lot of times people start to experience this stuff, and then they finally might share it with their spouse. They'll say, like, you know, actually, I get kind of creeped out upstairs. I've, I've, I've seen this old man. And the spouse just, the shoulders drop, and they go, oh, my God, it's not just me. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's this big sigh of relief. And once people start communicating, it just gets better, right? People are now talking. It's in the open. You've seen it. I've seen it. Clearly something's here. So now how do you tell your kids? You know, how do you take the next step to, to talking about your kid, you know, to your kids? Do you feel threatened? Because if so, that's that's an issue that absolutely must be addressed. If you don't feel threatened, you know, there's different ways to go about it. And so based on the age of your child and the maturity level, of course, there's there's different approaches to take on, on how to talk to them. I mean, maybe uh, it's 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 a it's a long shot here, but maybe we can get to the point where the idea of ghosts just stops becoming scary to young kids. That's why the reason we fear just about anything is because we don't know it or understand it. Mm-hmm. And so, if we can talk about it and if we can explain what these things might be—that they're not here to hurt us most of the time—you um, know—that you, you can take some of that fear away. You have to realize that young, you know. Young children, they're, they're sponges. They're ready to absorb. And they're, you know, they're learning about the religion that you indoctrinate them into. They're learning about all kinds of things. And if you can avoid you know, putting that filter on them at a young age like so many parents do, of, oh, it's not real, and then they kind of turn off the abilities that young kids seem to have, then right. maybe they can hold on to that and, uh, and utilize it later in life. All right, why don't we go to the phones here? Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Jeff Belanger. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, spooktacular. Awesome. Okay, Jeff, I have a question for you. What's your name? Um, Summer. Hi, Summer. I'm calling from Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, my goodness. Yeah. Okay, so I was wondering which of your books that you have written is your favorite or the one that you've learned the most from writing? Oh, my God. That's like saying who's your favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> the first one, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, my God, that... Thanks for the question. No, I'm 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 excited about this one because it's my first kids book. Um, But geez, I I think um, ones I think about a lot are my book "Communicating with the Dead," which was the second book I wrote. uh, Just because I think that was some of the best writing I've done. Uh, It was really um, a spirit, my own spiritual quest, where I I go through a lot of spirit communication devices. And then also "Our Haunted Lives," I keep coming back to because um, it was a book of interviews, and I really enjoy talking to people and. And getting their stories. So, um, how's that for a specific answer? Three. Yeah, that's pretty good. Three, I have um, most of your books. I don't have Our Haunted Lives. That's the only one I think I don't have. Oh, well, gee, thank you. Thanks for oh, that. And I'm waiting for the kids' book, and I'm going to read it to my two year old. Oh, awesome. Thank you so I much, know. Summer. Well, what's your favorite Jeff Polandra book? Um, the Nightmare Encyclopedia. 
Aw, thanks. Do you have any nightmares you want interpreted real quick on the fly? Oh, my God. Okay, I keep having a recurring dream about Chucky. Chucky. Yeah. Well, you know, they're making, they're making a remake, so that it, might have something to do it, with you're it. You're eating too much pizza. Yeah, probably. Oh, no, not wait, that wait. Chucky. No, yeah. wait. Oh, the you doll. Live in, you live in Florida? Yes. Oh, it's because of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I guess. <laughs> no, no. That, you know, um, what, what's, what's amazing about uh, our nightmares is that I, I think any dream has meaning to the dreamer, but a nightmare has even more meaning, and it's it's demanding that you pay attention. A monster in a dream, be it Chucky or you know some axe wielding maniac, always represents an issue, and it's your job to figure out what that issue is. And so you you want to put that into the context of your like your life. Next time you have the dream, pay attention to what's going on around you. Did you just get in a fight with a, a loved one? A disagreement at work? You know, try to find a pattern to it, and you might figure out what the uh, what what that Chucky represents? Yeah, I I always have dreams about him, and it's always in a different scenario. But I've had him since I was like nine. Any romantic dreams? So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Summer. Uh, we we actually have a story coming up in the week and weird at uh, the top of the second hour that talks about women and the nightmares that they experience, and it, it actually has nothing to do with the the three guys that are normally on the show. So, <laughs> but uh, thank you for checking in all the way down there in Florida. And, Thanks, uh, Summer. Oh, thank Try you. To avoid, you guys have a good night. Avoid any hurricanes you too. that might be coming up there. Oh, I know. They're horrible. <laughs> All right. Stay safe. Talk Bye. to you later. Yeah, I've been given, uh, I've been given Chris Balzano crap. Like, every time there's a hurricane, I'm like, well, you're done. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Come on home, Chris. Really? I mean, the, why would you move down there? You know, you, you see all this stuff happening. Yeah, Earth, no, I know. Earth changes. Crazy. Yeah, God has made it clear he doesn't like Florida. Yeah, pretty. He's like, you know what? I'm tired of waiting for these people. <laughs> no, That's pretty much. Florida's a wonderful state. Of course, I've, it is. I've been uh, all throughout it. All right. Well, when you talk about, you know, being able to be allowed into the White House and get this secret tour, and uh, the behind-the-scenes tour, and, yeah. and you get these stories, is there ever the possibility that at least part of the White House, in some capacity, could be offered up for an investigation? Oh, man. You know, first of all, they made it abundantly clear, and I, I believe them beyond a shadow of a doubt. The only way to get upstairs is by invitation of the first family. If someone in the first family wants to let you come in and do an investigation, that is absolutely their business. Um, the whole staff works to protect the privacy of that first family. You have to realize that, you know, before 9-11, something like 6,000 people a day normally would tour the White House, and since then... It's almost 2,000, which I think is incredible. Um, that's 2,000 background checks mm-hmm. a day, by the way, because everyone who goes through, you know, the, if you want to take a normal tour, you still can. You, you, they ask you to schedule it about six months out. You've got to go through your local representative, uh, you know, put your name in. You have to get the, the background check and the whole bit. And it's, uh, and it's, it's really a worthwhile thing if you know you're going to be in Washington, D.C. six months from now, <laughs> you know, six months from whatever you, you, you want to go. And, uh, you know, Here's the thing about the, the staff, though, is that they've seen so much, you know, come and go, and they know so much. And history is such a sacred subject. There, um, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe one day, if anything, maybe this president, George Bush, George W. Bush, will give us a chance. I mean, when you're in your last few months of office, yeah. you have nothing to lose. You got to do something to uh, right. to increase your approval ratings, and look at the ratings for like ghost hunters. You know, so if yeah, you can right. translate some of those numbers <laughs> to yourself, uh, yeah, I'll tell you. I, I mean, I, I think I got about as close as you can get. And um, boy, maybe you know, maybe this book will open some stuff up because I, I do plan to send it to some of the people who helped me. And you know, I'd love to go back. You know, we've we've got 
three other votes here that are up for grabs. So whichever Ooh. whichever candidate wants to offer us the chance Ooh. to get in and investigate. Man. Not only that, but me and the three other names that I have registered to vote that I've made up along the way. Right. They'll all vote for you as well. Vote early, vote often. Yeah, but... Uh, the, I, I hear a lot of investigators say, oh, it'd be my dream to get in yeah. and investigate the White House. But really, what are you going to be able to do with that information if you get anything? It's going to be under such lock and key for security purposes. If you got upstairs into the president's private chambers and you were able to document existence, they're going to tell you, well, you can't publish it anyway because we don't want people to know. You know, I, I'm just not sure about that. I mean, as long as you're not compromising the privacy of the first family in any way, um, which we wouldn't be. I mean, you know, frankly, here's the thing. You and I and Matt and everybody listening, we own that house. That's our that's house. That's public housing, man. We pay for it. Uh, that's why we're still allowed to tour it. You know, all the furniture, everything inside, the salary that everybody there makes, you know, that's that's taxpayer money that goes into that. And so in some respects, you know, we, we kind of have a right to get in there. Now, they might answer that it's been done before. Andrew Jackson, when he got in office, he was like the everyman's president and said, everybody's welcome to come into the White House. And it was, it was a mob scene. People were like ripping down drapes and stealing things, and you know, which is exactly what you'd expect to happen. Um, but at the same time, it, it's remarkably open to the public, considering it's probably one of the top military targets you know, in, the, in the world, uh, considering that... Um, you know who lives there and and everything else. It's incredibly accessible, and it's an important building. It really is a special place. Washington D.C. is pretty amazing. I mean, when you're not in the bad neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah, when, when you're actually in the you know the, the capital area. Right, when you're in the capital area, and when you, when you get down around there, it's like, man, this this is something. This this whole country, you know, right here. Well, well, when you've been down there, have you had a chance to go through some of these monuments at night? And and been there during that. I mean, that's it's such a difference at night. Oh yeah, it's, it, and it is spooky. I mean, oh, it's quiet. I yeah. mean, a lot of you know that's that's a that's a commuting city. I mean, once once you're in downtown, everybody goes home at five o'clock. So when you walk around at night, it is it's vacant and uh, it's haunting. But yeah, you really need to breathe in how many people have been there before you. You know, this, every our history books are filled with those names. And that's even without going to Georgetown and taking a tumble down the Exorcist staircase. <laughs> right. Which is behind a gas station now. Oh, is it? Yeah. I didn't that's why everybody's like, oh, I, can't, I went to Georgetown. I couldn't find the Exorcist staircase. Well, look behind the gas station. That's why I couldn't see it. God, isn't that movie powerful? Man, we all love that one, don't we? Absolutely. Great movie. Especially uh, when you find out that you know it's it's somewhat of a true story. True-ish. True, yeah, true-ish. We'll go with that. <laughs> true-ish. All right, well, we are going to uh, take a break in just a few minutes for the news. When we come back, we will talk to Grant Cameron, who runs the website presidentialufo.com, where they talk about some of the presidential connections with UFOs, and we'll continue on with our discussion about the paranormal presidency. Uh, he's also working on something as well that has to do with psychic phenomena surrounding the presidents. Is that something, Jeff, in, in your discussions with the the White House staff, has it ever come up with, did they ever say that you know this person kind of had... ESP or this person might have had some sort of connection. No, you'd have to get that from the sources. And uh, again, there's lots of there's lots of writing on the Reagans, you know, dealing with their the numerologists and the astrologers. Um, you know, I'm sure presidents have consulted with psychics and things like that. But th- there's enough rumors that make you think that there must be something to it. But no, they're not gonna. They're not going to be forthcoming about something like that. I, I mean, I, I heard that uh, that Nixon actually used to complain because the spirits that were in the White House would, would mess with his recording devices. <laughs> Over at Watergate. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, I guess, uh, 
I guess they kind of knew what they were doing then, and they were trying to help him out a little bit, and you know, <laughs> right. he, he's complaining about it. Yeah, you need the edge. But uh, when we do come back also, we will have the return of the Week in Weird. It seems like it's been like three months since we've done a Week in Weird, Matt Costa. I have to ask you because Matt Moniz hasn't been in the studio very much lately. He's been out in the field and out at conferences and stuff, so he wouldn't remember. I've seen Matt out at conferences. We were hanging out in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago. He's Great building, by the way. Killer building, baby. He's the uh, he's the public face of Spooky South Coast. Hey, what? No, seriously, I was walking through the lobby of the uh, <laughs> of the hotel with Matt, and some woman yells out, "Hey, you're you're Matt from Spooky South Coast. I love your show. You should have seen it, man." I'm just I mean, like, she's like, I, "I I love your bumpers and all the stuff you make." And he's like, "Oh, that that's the other Matt." Oh man, yeah, I think he was hitting the head with a room key or something. It was like, <laughs> wow, hey, there you go. <laughs> oh, it was. No, we have actually some very good fans. I ran into a couple of them there. I ran into a couple of them down in uh, TapsCon. Cool. I mean, believe well, it or not, we're somewhat known. And we, we, we give them crap. People know you. You're kind of a big deal. Yeah. I don't know if you know. I, I prefer yeah. not to be, actually. If you guys know me. I like to be behind the scenes. We, I like we, to help out and do do things to help other people. But, I mean, we, we give them crap all the time for, you know, going out and doing this stuff. But he has to be the one to do it because... If if Cost and I go, what do we have to offer anybody? Matt can give them, you know, investigative techniques, his experiences, uh, all the stuff that he's learned, and plus, you know, he's actually willing to help people. Whereas all we want to do is sit in our rooms and like, you know, call me when it's dinner time. Uh, you know, you know what I like when fans buy you drinks at the bar. <laughs> oh, that's the best. <laughs> it's happened well, twice. <laughs> that's uh, and the only thing better than that is uh, when they. You know, they pay for your drinks, and they actually really do know who you are. Yeah, right. And they're not just, uh, they think that you're somebody just because you're at the conference. Right, yeah. I saw you hanging out with Jason and Grant. Yeah, exactly. You must be important. (laughs) So, uh, all right, well, when we come back, we will talk with Grant Cameron, and and Jeff's going to stick around with us as well. Yeah, it's a party. Yeah, it is. And if you have anything you want to talk about in relation to the paranormal, give us a call, 508-996-0500, We've got some big shows coming up for you in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we know that we've been kind of slacking lately, so we're going to come back strong. Next week we're going to talk about UFO abductions then and now with uh, Kathy Martin, who is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. We're going to talk more about that case. Uh, as well as uh, the end of the month, the 27th, we're going to talk to uh, Tiffany Johnson, Psychic Tiffany. She's going to be on here for the whole show, taking people's calls as well. And uh, then in October, we get some big news coming up regarding the Paradigm Research Group, and we'll talk about that with Grant Cameron as well. Plus, you know, who knows? I mean, it's Halloween season, so we're going to have all kinds of stuff going on. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Start screaming. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. I'm not afraid. You Supernatural or 
Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and just so you can have a nickname, too, mayorofghostvillage.com, Jeff Belanger. Thanks. Is there, there going to be an election for that? Yes, there's an election. There's only one vote. It's mine. Okay. Just wondering if like, we needed to start like the campaign trail and give equal time to the other candidates. or I might vote for someone else. You never know. There you go. Well, uh, we are here each and every Saturday night to talk with you about the paranormal, and tonight we are talking about the paranormal presidency, and we'll get right back into that, some of the uh, esoteric examples that surround the Oval Office. That's some alliteration. And uh, we will talk with Grant Cameron of PresidentialUFO.com, but first, we're going to bring back a little something that we like to call the Week in Weird. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. It's a wonderful, weird stuff. The Week in Weird. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the Week in Weird. All right, our first story. Actually, we'll send this one out to Summer, who Women experience significantly more nightmares than men and have more emotional dreams, research suggests. In a study of 170 volunteers asked to record their most recent dream, 19% of men reported a nightmare compared with 30% of women. Researcher Dr. Jennifer Parker of the University of Jennifer Parker, Back to the Future, of the University of West of University of the West of England said there was no difference in the overall number of dreams reported. Other research. <laughs> this is why we usually have him over the phone, isn't it? Yeah, it's he, easier. He broke me. He broke. <laughs> you know, two hours of beyond, th- three hours of beyond reality. He couldn't break me, but tonight he breaks me. <laughs> Sorry, on my own show, no less. Other research has shown women tend to have more disturbed sleep than men. One factor has been linked to this is changes in a woman's body temperature during her monthly cycle. Dr. Parker, a lecturer in psychology, said it has been known for a long time. Uh, premenstrual women report more vivid and disturbing dreams. This almost sounds like a Matt Costa story where it's going. The consistent finding in this research was that women report more unpleasant dreams than men. Women taking part in the study were much more likely to report dreaming about very emotionally traumatic events, such as the loss of a loved one. She added, in terms of processing emotional information, women may be more prone to taking unresolved concerns into their sleep life. Dr. Chris Idzikowski, director of the Edinburgh Sleep Center, said he was not surprised the research showed a gender difference, but what is difficult to pick out is whether women are having more nightmares or remembering them better. This fits in with what's in the literature. Women's sleep tends to be more disrupted and they have more insomnia, and more frequent waking could cause them to pick up on the dream. But it could be that disturbed sleep is contributing to the fears. He added that nightmares in everyone were probably more common than people realize, but they're just quickly forgotten about. And my reading of that story turned into a nightmare. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's, it's, no it's, a, it's a little levity for, uh, for the news. This is, this is the fun segment here. This the is where news of the weird. Matt Costa, what do you have for us? It, does it have anything to do with, with premenstrual women dreaming? Because mm. Your mic's not working. Huh? Is that a rocket? No. <laughs> He's waiting for that discussion on UFOs and the presidency. It's, it's a UFO. Right. Sure. Uh, from uh, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a 
A 54-year-old man that says... starts with a P, not an F. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> says his obsessive-compulsive disorder drove him to eat 23,000 Big Macs over the course of 36 years. 54-year-old Don Gorski says he hit the milestone last month, continuing his pleasurable obsession that began in May seven, on May 17, 1972, when he got his first car. Gorski has kept every burger receipt in a box. Not that box. <laughs> <laughs> he says he was always... That's why we need to have a, a video feed of the show at the same uh, time. Spooky South Coast uncensored. <laughs> Radio host going wild. Uh, where, where do I begin? <laughs> he says he was always fascinated with numbers and watching McDonald's track its, cust- its customers' numbers motivated to him to track his own consumption. He just wanted to see that thing turn. He did. He wanted to, see, he wanted to <laughs> eat a Big Mac and watch it turn. Sorry, go ahead. He's only skipped eight days since his Big Mac attack begun, or began, uh, including the day his mother died to honor her request. The uh, correctional institution employee says he doesn't care when people call, when people call him the Big Mac obsessed crazy. He says he's in love with burgers, which is the highlight of his day. And that story is from the AP. He's the most pathetic man I ever heard of. <laughs> no, no MySpace for him. Could you find a MySpace for him? Maybe we can check out a picture. I, I didn't look. I yeah. Lost. How many? How many Big Macs has he eaten? Uh, twenty-three thousand. And how long? Thirty-six years. That's it, Don. I, I'm taking that challenge. <laughs> I'm taking that challenge. I'm already up to about twelve thousand this week alone, with all the running around I've had to do. All right, speaking of Big Macs, let's go to our own Hamburglar. Matt Moniz, what do you have for us? I got something from uh, CBS 11 News in Dallas. Dozens of uh, Stevensville residents reported seeing UFOs in the area in January. At first, the military reported there were no aircraft in the area that, that night. Two weeks later, officials said they were, con- they were conducting training exercises in the area. Now, now some city <laughs> officials want to know if the government exercises were, were, that were being performed and why they weren't uh, notified ahead of time. I want to know why public officials weren't notified of a large military operation in our area, said Stevensville City Council Member uh, Mark Murphy. He has filed a complaint with the U.S. Air Force and the Federal Aviation Administration demanding answers. My main concern is public safety. Uh, said Councilman Murphy. I want to make sure that if anything uh, like this is going on, people are alerted. According to local aviation expert, the military must communicate with the FAA, but they are not required to contact city officials. Councilman Murphy thinks this rule should be changed. Just so we know that they're going to be operating in this area, said it's only a, as a courtesy, our intergovernmental courtesy. He, he stated. Councilman Murphy said he doesn't need to know the details about what the military is doing over the skies of Stevensville at night. He just wants corrective action to be taken. All right, well, my question to you, Matt Moniz, is somebody who both investigates UFO reports but also kind of has a little bit of the knowledge of the inside stuff of what it is that they try to do in secret. Do you think that that could happen? Could they be able to say when they're going to be doing these exercises, or is it just 
it has to be kept under wraps that much. I mean, they don't have to give the particulars, but they can give them a window saying we may be exercising between this period and this period. Because, you know, generally if, if you know, there's going to be an air show or something, then you know that they're going to come a week before and, and run these exercises. Uh, but that's, you know, a civilian event that's, you know, a reason. Right. Are you going to get in, start to get into issues where, especially there where it's so close to, you know, the presidential compound are you going to get into issues where they're just going to shut that down and say no what we do in this area you know we can't even let you know when we're going to be doing it it all depends upon the level of uh testing that they're doing uh, are they te- are they just doing a training exercise or are they testing out a new piece of hardware yeah, that they i mean that's what i'm thinking is that they might be utilizing stuff there that they they don't want you looking if they give you the heads up you're going to be looking to the skies and they kind of don't right. want you to is because uh, then the next thing you know, you get everybody out there with their telescopes and their binoculars, seeing pieces of equipment that nobody's supposed to know about yet. Right. So, but hey, they could have saved a lot of trouble if uh, if that was the case. I think the fact that they're not letting them know is just further proof that Stevensville was an actual UFO. All right, Jeff. Now it's your turn. <laughs> this is only fair that I have to read one of these. So uh, let's see here. North Korean leader Kim Jong-il has been dead for years and replaced by a number of lookalikes that Japanese professor claims. North Korea expert professor Toshimutsu Shigemura, a professor of international relations, says Kim died of diabetes in 2003 and has been substituted by up to four body doubles ever since. Driven by fear of assassination, Kim allegedly trained his doppelgangers, one of whom underwent plastic surgery, to attend public appearances. Scholars don't trust my reasoning, but intelligent people see the possibility that it will turn out to be accurate. Fox News reported uh, Professor Shigemura as saying, Kim, 66, has not appeared in public for three weeks amid rumors he is seriously unwell. While Seoul intelligence officials have said they believe he has diabetes and heart problems, they do not think he is near death. But Professor Shigemura from Tokyo's respected Waseda University believes that Kim actually died sometime during a 42-day absence from public in September 2003. He claims that whenever anyone is granted a face-to-face meeting with today's Kim, a senior official is always by his side, like a puppet master. Professor Shigemura claims, outlined in his book, the true character of Kim uh, Kim Jong-il have been disputed by North Korean officials. From MSN 9 International News. Wait. Kim Jong Il is a puppet, and there's a puppet. Ma- Wasn't that a movie? No, I think he's a robot. I think that Wasn't was a movie. movie that had a puppet. Kim mm. Jong. <laughs> I think there was, and there was two puppets that <laughs> made sweet love in that movie. Yeah, I, I can't Chucky? remember. <laughs> 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 yes, it was Chucky and someone else. I can't remember who it was, but uh, Kim Jong Il's son uh, is like a huge fan of some, you know, American recording star, and this American recording star is going to go over there and perform a concert, like for Kim Jong Il's son, like a. A private special celebration concert. My goodness. Is it the Jonas Brothers? Because uh, <laughs> I don't think it's the Jonas would, Brothers. That would be very awkward. They can stay. <laughs> <laughs> they can stay. I can't believe you guys didn't mess with me more than that. I mean, <laughs> I expected well, more. Uh, no, nah, we, we try to be nice to the guests. Oh, come on. Nah, f- you, you ever see The Toy with Richard Pryor? Yeah, sure. Yeah, just watch the door when you walk out. Oh, very good. All right, that is the Week and Weird for this week. If you have a story you'd like to submit to the Week and Weird, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com. Click on the forum and go to the Week and Weird thread. Drop the story in there or a link to it. And if we use it on the air, we will send you a bumper sticker. That's right. Well, we got big time prizes here. The bumper sticker. So uh, we'll be right back with Grant Cameron talking about presidents and the UFO connections among them. Stay tuned for more here on Spooky South Coast.
dust in the skies, and it got uh, closer and closer, and when it uh, was just above the treetops, it changed color, and then it stayed there for a while, and then it uh, disappeared into the distance. And none of us could ever imagine what it was, and I still don't know what it was. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? What could be more alien to the universal aspirations of our peoples than war and the threat of war? Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Matt Costa, Matt Moniz, and Jeff Belanger. And joining us on the phone right now is Grant Cameron. He runs the website presidentialufo.com. Uh, he's been involved in ufology since May of 1975, and uh, he runs presidentialufo.com to inform the public of the connections between UFOs and our commander-in-chief. And uh, he's joining us on the line to talk about that and more. How are you tonight, Grant? Just fine, Tim. How are you? All right. Well, you know, we, we had you on uh, a few months ago with uh, Steve Bassett, and we didn't really have a whole lot of time to discuss a lot of these connections uh, with extraterrestrials in the presidency. So now we uh, definitely want to uh, try to get into that a little bit deeper with you tonight. Sure. Now, what was it that really got your attention when you were researching UFO cases and, and you started connecting it to you know, the presidency? Uh, well, my, um, as I have explained to many people, I've told the story many times, my experience in, in the UFO thing is a little bit different than maybe some researchers. Uh, I, I sort of got involved with a sighting, and it was a fairly dramatic sighting, and two nights later I went out and I had an even more dramatic sighting, and I spent a period of 18 months covering a flock of sightings in a, a town called Carmen, Manitoba, which is just about maybe 30 miles north of the uh, U.S. border. And so right from the word go in May of 1975, I always knew what was going on. I mean, it was not, uh, do I got to really prove this to myself or anything. Mm -hmm. I, I knew instinctively what I, not so much where they came from, whatever, but that what I had seen was, was very dramatic. It was not something of this world. I, I was always convinced that UFOs uh, were real from the word go. So what I had done from that point on was to try to sort of convince my father, who was a pilot, and friends and stuff, that uh, this thing was for real. And when I first started out, I figured it was going to be a very easy thing. We just, because uh, I had really no interest before then. I, and so I went sort of to look for some answers, uh, what the government position was on it, and suddenly became totally shocked that it, there was, uh, the government was saying nothing was going on, and there was a bunch of people denying it. And, and so I started on this, this thing of trying to, to um, prove the case. And what I did is, at first, I wrote a manuscript on on the sightings, this 18-month flap in Carmen, Manitoba, Canada, and uh, put it out to a number of publishers. Did get some readings and stuff, and people were sort of interested. But uh, it came down to the big publisher in the uh, fairly big city that I live in, Winnipeg, and she wrote back and said, um, "You can, uh, um, as to the UFO book, um, uh, it may be of interest to you, count me among the unbelievers, or something to this effect. Wow. Which just infuriated me. I couldn't believe, you know, I'd spent a year and a half at pulled out of university to do this. And so then, uh, one of the sightings in this small town was a radar tech who had worked with my father in the Department of Transport. 
and he had said, well, you know, if you really want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should study what the Canadian government was doing and the work of Wilbur uh, Smith. And I said, well, who was he? And he said, well, he ran the Canadian government UFO program, and I worked for him. I was just a, a, a radar technician at the time, or just a tech, and worked with him. And this guy was totally crazy. He used to talk to them, and they'd land in his backyard. And I went, well, what are you talking about? So I went, I figured that, well, this would convince people. The, the, the sighting stuff really wasn't convincing people because it was basically, I had seen something, who cares, nice story, but it really doesn't prove anything. And so I went to uh, document what the Canadian government had done through Wilbur Smith, and uh, we spent a number of years working on it, talking to his wife, his closest associates, uh, trying to recover the Canadian government documents, which I did recover a number of them, and put that material out. And people were a little more impressed than they were with the sightings, but still people went, well, you know, maybe the guy was crazy. Uh, there was a top-secret document that said it was for real. People still didn't really grasp onto it. And during that investigation, uh, uh, Wilbur Smith was dealing with the Canadian, with the American government through the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C., on a, on a military level. And one of the people that we sort of tracked down that was providing information to Wilbur Smith and the Canadian government was a, was a fellow by the name of Dr. Robert Starbacher, who uh, later was interviewed by Stanton Friedman, and all this was rehashed, and the material that he was giving to Wilbur Smith stating that flying saucers are real, this sort of stuff, uh, basically, he, he we then recontacted him in 1983, and he basically said, "Yeah, this is all for real." And uh, he said I, there was a series of briefings that had taken place on a crash in the West. And the briefings had taken place at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I didn't have time to go, so Stanton started to ask him all these questions about, "Well, who went? Who was here?" And he named off uh, Vannevar Bush and uh, von Neumann, the guy who started the, the invented the computer, this sort of stuff very high-ranking people, but they were all dead. And Stanton said, well, don't you know anybody that's still alive? And he said, well, there's this guy from Pennsylvania, and he was real arrogant. He thought he knew everything. He went to all the briefings, and uh, we ended up finding out this is a fellow by the name of Dr. Eric Walker, who was uh, the former president of Penn State University, had an um, engineering degree, 14 honorary doctorate degrees, was friends with all the different presidents, and I spent a number of years, and we put out a book called UFOs MJ-12 in the Government, which was basically eight years of different researchers talking to this former president of Penn State University, trying to get him on the record and saying, you know what was going on, and the guy did know what was going on, mm -hmm. and he was trying to talk around the, the questions and this sort of stuff. We put this material out. The reporter came and said, uh, asked him, and for the first time in his life, he, he hung up the phone. He said, uh, I deny it, and he hung up the phone, and this reporter from Penn State University he was so intimidated by this powerful guy that she wouldn't, talk, wouldn't uh, phone him back. So in reviewing his material after we put the book out, I found out that he had, was formerly uh, sort of like an assistant secretary of defense in, in the Pentagon uh, in 1950, and this is when this briefing took place at Ray Patterson Air Force Base. So what I did was I started to try to find these records. I went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I went to uh, Penn State University where he had tens of thousands of pages of his own material, Dr. Walker, and in one of the documents, it said that he was going to try to provide his, his official uh, papers from the Research and Development Board to the Truman Library. So at that point, I said, well, these are the papers we're looking for. This is, this is where the documents are going to be that's going to prove all this stuff. The, you know, we'll have the briefing from, the, from Ray Patterson, because Walker did say he had the briefing, or he had notes from the briefing, and that he still had them, and he would have to consider whether he would give us the notes or whatever. So at that point, I went to the Truman Library, and I went to uh, see to get Walker's notes. 
And while I was there, this is in Independence, Missouri, I basically said, well, what have you got on UFOs? And they basically said, well, we've got some letters that were sent on the 1952 overflight of Washington, D.C. And basically they had, I don't, I don't know how many pages, it wasn't very many, 30, 40 pages, whatever. And I thought, well, this is very strange. This is uh, possibly the most important story in the world, and this is the most important guy in the world. You would think there'd be more. So during that trip, uh, the Eisenhower Library is on the other side of Kansas City. It's about maybe 80 miles from Independence. I figured, well, on this trip, I'll just flip over to the Eisenhower Library, and I got a. Uh, you have to actually interview there. So you go and they they interview you. You sit down and they ask you what your research subject is. You're uh, given an archivist, and I asked him. I said, well, what have you got on UFOs? And the guy had actually done research in preparation for this uh, interview, and he said we've got five documents. One was a telex. Uh, or a telegram that was sent to the president. Mm -hmm. One was the famous CIA report from the Robertson panel, uh, which was done under Truman, but actually fell under the uh, Eisenhower administration because it extended into his administration. But they basically had five documents. And at that point, I said to myself, this is absolutely, something's wrong here. They, they had 28 million pages of material in the Eisenhower library, and they only had five documents on UFOs. And at that point, I made it a, sort of a... Uh, a goal that if this was the most important person in the world, this is the guy that that has the answer, and if he doesn't have the answer, he should have the answer. And and it was at that point that I started to go to one library after another library after another library, looking for the documents that would show what does the president of the United States, and there that is, you know, the American government know about the subject of, of flying saucers. And, and with that in mind, and the research that you've done, what have you been able to piece together? Uh, in terms of how the presidents have interacted or, or how they've known about these these visitations? Um, actually, I'm probably more confused now than I was when I first started. <laughs> at, at one point, I did think the presidents knew, and then I had some, some contacts with a number of people, and uh, I, I put together, um, I guess, a scenario that seems to agree with what Edgar Mitchell is saying. Edgar Mitchell, in, in uh, the brief correspondence I had with him, said that he had been told by his inside sources that nobody after uh, Kennedy had actually been briefed in on, on the subject of flying saucers. And that seems to be um, what seems to be um, going along with, 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 with what I'm finding. And Steven Spielberg came across a comment. Steven Spielberg knew a number of presidents, and so Steven Spielberg... Of course, it asked the presidents, and we have an actual audio tape of him saying that he had asked them, and all of them claimed that they had no concrete evidence to back this thing up. Uh, more accurately, some of the things I've discovered is that Bill Clinton, for sure, was cut out. That Bill Clinton was very interested, Hillary Clinton was very interested, and they were trying to get the, the information. And where it came from, I was told at one point in a lecture, when I lecture, I lecture in Arkansas every year, um, that uh, they they or somebody very close to them had had a sighting at this famous barbecue restaurant where the Clintons used to hang out. And so that's where the interest came from. And I managed at that point to get all the documents from the, the science advisor's office in the Clinton uh, uh, White House, which is about a 1,000 pages of material, which sort of document the Rockefeller Initiative where Lawrence Rockefeller suddenly decides he's going to go to the president and he's going to get the president to speak out on this and to uh, declassify this stuff, and this sort of interaction back and forth between the White House and, and Lawrence Rockefeller and Rockefeller's representatives that basically show that, that, especially Hillary, Hillary was very interested in the whole thing, 
and uh, they were trying to do something, and uh, at, at came down to uh, a meeting with Rockefeller at his uh, lodge in uh, August of 1995 when the Clintons went there for holiday, and uh, the, the briefing, well, it's not really a briefing because it was Rockefeller's private citizen, but Rockefeller sat down and presented what, what he believed the Clintons should, should know and what they should put out, and uh, Hillary basically told him the, the next morning, okay, we've listened to what you've got to say, we'd, we'd like you never to bring up the subject again. So it seems to be a political type of thing, you know, where like uh, UFOs is sort of like selling vacuum cleaners door to door. Nobody really wants to be associated with it. And the presidents, whether they know anything or whether they don't know anything, it's really not an issue that they're really going to address. And so I, I think it's going to be a number of years until we actually find out what the presidents know because uh, I've stated over the last couple of years, I think one of the big problems is that the UFO community really doesn't push the issue. They don't really force the issue uh, with uh, the White House or with uh, our public representatives, like the, the, the president, uh, presidential campaign. Basically, nobody has brought up a UFO question except for one that was directly put to uh, Richardson by uh, a UFO researcher. But other than that, it's sort of an issue that's sort of on the back burner. Uh, they may be interested. They, they may know something. For example, Dick Cheney, the one guy I did get, to actually uh, confront him with the question uh, as to whether he'd been briefed, which is what we're, what I'm interested in. I'm really, I really don't care, you know, whether they saw a UFO, what they think about UFOs. All I want to know is the truth. Back, backing myself up to this 1975 thing where I'm looking for something to prove this. And then the truth will be, is the president briefed? Did someone walk into the president's office and tell him, the sum total of all the intelligence agencies in the United States, what they know about the UFO subject. And that was the question I asked Dick Cheney. I said, Mr. Cheney, in all your jobs in government, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if so, when was it and what were you told? And Dick Cheney said, if I had been briefed on that subject, it would probably be classified and I wouldn't be talking about it, which sort of confirmed to me that some people, for example, Dick Cheney and there's some inner circle people, do know what's going on. Uh, but it's something that's, that's highly classified, and uh, people just aren't going to talk about it. And the president is, is uh, as I see, is sort of a figurehead that um, is um, sort of out there but really doesn't need to know unless you, you're in a situation where something happens, there's a crash, or they know there's going to be a UFO question asked at a press conference then they'll bring the president up to speed, as they do with any issue. Because mm -hmm. the president, uh, people think they know everything. They really don't know very much of anything. They, uh, they come in as governors, most of them, and they really have no experience at a lot of different things. And it's basically people briefing them based upon what is, what is the subject of the day and bringing them up to speed. But they, they have, they're so busy as presidents, they really don't have time to read very much uh, and know what's going on on every intricate subject. That's what they have people underneath them to advise them. Now, it's you mentioned, of course, that nobody's really pushed the president for this disclosure. But and I promised Steve that I wouldn't spill the beans now until he makes the big announcement. But uh, on the uh, Paradigm Research Group's website on October first, there's going to be uh, some big news regarding that. So you want to make sure that you stay tuned. Uh, to that, for everybody out there, we'll put a link up on October 1st on SpookySouthCoast.com as well uh, because there's there's an interesting initiative that the uh, PRG is launching to try and get some of this disclosure happening. Exactly, yeah. Hey, Steve has been very – we have worked with Steve for a number of years, and he's he's very much 
uh, on the same the same issue that he wants he wants it out and he wants the truth to be told and he is very familiar with the Rockefeller Initiative. He has all the uh, a great number of the documents from the Rockefeller Initiative on his website. That sort of you can go there and you can see actually the correspondence going back and forth uh, between the White House and and people who are pushing the, the UFO initiative. And there there is a the other incident was the uh, Hillary was asked one question, but uh, during the campaign, and basically confirmed the fact that she was involved in the Rockefeller Initiative, basically that uh, she had tried to help Rockefeller and uh, did confirm really, and I think the same thing goes with Bill. Like Bill is openly, um, will openly state that he's, he's not, not interested. The word he used was fascinated. That's what he told Paul Davids uh, out of Hollywood, that he was fascinated with the subject and very interested and has made a number of comments uh, that really he didn't have to make. He made one at, in, in 1995 when they, they released the first Roswell report, where uh, it, the first Roswell report released in 1995 did not talk about bodies. And so Bill Clinton goes into a speech in, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, stands up and says, if the government did recover, I, I don't believe they recovered a flying saucer, but if they did, they uh, recover bodies. They didn't tell me about it, and I want to know which forced the Air Force to go out in 1997, spend whatever millions of dollars more, to do another Rockefeller or another uh, report on Roswell, and that's the one where they talk about the bodies, dropping the dummies out of the planes and all this kind of stuff. And the other incident where Bill was uh, not prompted and actually talked about uh, UFOs was in uh, 2005 in Hong Kong, in a speech in Hong Kong, where he was asked the question, Mr. President, uh, do presidents pass secrets from one president to another? Like, for example, where is Jimmy Hoffa's body buried? And, of course, uh, he doesn't deal with uh, Jimmy Hoffa. He launches into this whole thing about UFOs and uh, how I'm probably not the first president they've lied to uh, or that bureaucrats have tried to wait out. And basically said, yes, he did try to get the Roswell material and he was not able to get anything. And this was unprompted. He wasn't... UFOs had nothing to do with the, the question. So, Bill, I think if you actually got Bill into an interview, somebody who knew the, the background and actually talked to Bill, I think Bill would tell you an awful lot of stuff. And I think uh, Hillary, but for Hillary, it's, it's absolutely radioactive material. I mean, she's still trying to run for president. It's not something that's going to get her any votes. And so even though she's very interested, uh, she's not going to touch it because she already knows. I, I know in your first hour you talked about ghosts. And Hillary has been involved in this sort of uh, thing that first ladies sometimes get burnt on. Nancy Reagan got burnt on the astrology thing. And Hillary got burnt on this, this thing with Gene Houston out of New York. And whether it was channeling dead people or whatever it was, Hillary was into this thing where she was talking to Gandhi and she was talking to different people and stuff like this. And this hit the press and it just, I mean, just totally, you know, was thousands of articles. And uh, that's one of the things I have uh, in my FOIA request with the Clinton Library is all the material on the uh, Hillary Clinton-Gene Houston connection as to uh, her interest in paranormal, in psychic phenomena, this sort of stuff. And um, so Hillary's interested, but uh, I don't think other than her confirming the actual stuff that she knows we have, for example, the Rockefeller Initiative, I don't think she's really going to really touch it too much because she's still, I think, right now looking to run for president in 2012. Hey, Grant, you know, the 
considering there's been a long history of politicians paying a political price when they discuss things like astrology or seances or ghosts or whatever, I mean, do, do you think there will be a president that could a president withstand the political price if they were to start openly discussing UFOs in office? Uh, that's that's a big question. I think um, um, it, it depends how how it goes. Like you you get presidents who will off off the sort of the cuff, like J- Jimmy Carter, for example, will um, talk about his sighting. Um, right. But when it comes to actually um, confirming that that this is going on, I think one of the problems is that they really don't have the material that they need. Like if they're going to make a, a disclosure type thing. I think the fallout would be great. I mean, I know um, uh, Linda Howe has talked about high-ranking people in the government that she's talked to that say, uh, uh, not on my watch, and I think that's the attitude they take is sort of like, uh, let, once once you spill the milk, it's out. You can't really pull it back. And so they're sort of like, uh, even though they might want to do it, it's sort of like all the repercussions of things that might happen that you really don't have any control over once you make the disclosure, that they'll say, well, let's let the next president do this and let it happen on somebody else's watch. So it, it's a tough, uh, a tough go of it, um, and it's very hard to sort of get to, get to these people and to get them to actually talk. Like even now, Jimmy Carter, if you've heard the, 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 during the 2008 campaign, uh, Dennis Kucinich was asked the UFO question. And uh, Dennis Kucinich is a pretty radical, uh, sort of on-the-edge guy, and he started to back away from this pretty fast. And so then they went to Jimmy Carter, and they said, well, what do you think, Jimmy Carter, about uh, Kucinich? And he basically is now in a position where he's saying, well, no, he doesn't believe it was extraterrestrial. I don't believe Martians can come here from Mars, and is totally backing off the whole thing. We'll say, yeah, I I saw something, but uh, it was very interesting, but I don't think it was a UFO. And... uh, so that, that's the kind of thing that the presidents are in, is that they, um, uh, every, everything in, in, in politics has got to do with, and I, I maintain this absolutely, everything has got to do with votes. Nothing has to do with, with, uh, um, with issues. Sure, of course. Uh, it's basically elected, then get reelected. And you can see that, uh, just an example, just before I was going on the air, I was, I was looking at some of the articles on the, on the recent campaign, and here's Obama now, who has lost the momentum. Suddenly this woman comes out of nowhere, and you have this image, and, and everything starts to roll, and it's like a, an air coming out of his balloon, and he's making this thing, we've got to get to the issues. Nobody could care less about the issues. It's basically, you've got this sort of Miss America running around right. uh, with five kids, and it all looks very glamorous, and she's, it's like a, she's like a rock star. You have a, you, today in Nevada... Three and a half thousand people allowed into the arena. She had six thousand people standing there trying to get in about three or four hours before the thing even started. It becomes like it's it's, it's image. You don't have fat, bald-headed guys running for president. Maybe it's, she's it's from uh, an image another planet. You never know. <laughs> yeah, hey, I, I you want my personal story about Bill Clinton and um, aliens? Sure. Uh, I met Bill Clinton back in 1994, 95 when he was in. Fall River, helping to campaign. Uh, I had a copy of Dick Hoagland's uh, open letter to the president for re-imaging of the Cydonia region. Okay. Uh, I plastered uh, this thing on a poster board and made it look like a gigantic envelope with, you know, 
Bill Clinton, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And on the reverse side was like a big postcard with uh, Hoagland's letter to have uh, NASA re-image the Cydonia region. Well, I also had copies, you know, like handbills to hand out to the people. Well, Clinton actually sent a person, uh, one of the Secret Service, to get a copy from me to read it. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Hmm. Well, I mean, I know that uh, the the uh, Hollywood guy that you mentioned before had passed on copies of uh, of Roswell books to Clinton, and, and he said directly, you know, I'm going to read these. Yeah, that's where he said I was. Fa- yeah, I was fascinated. He's fascinated with the with the subject, and then that that was on the second time. That was that was uh, Paul Davids, and that was the second time he had a, an encounter with Clinton. The first was because his father had taught Clinton at Georgetown. And uh, so the first one was when he sent the first Roswell book uh, and got a, an overnight uh, letter, like by overnight mail, from Clinton thanking him for the, for the books that he sent. I think it was 1995. And then, of course, this book came up when uh, the Monica Lewinsky thing broke, and the FBI went and did the uh, inventory of the books inside the White House uh, or the Oval Office. Uh, the book they were looking for was this Voss book this, uh, on phone sex, that Monica Lewinsky had sent to the president, and when they did the inventory, it was right beside the Roswell book. They were side to side by side in the, in the inventory in, in his uh, Oval Office. I'm sure, the thing. author was so honored. It became a sort of a famous uh, thing that uh, Paul Davids had done, and then he figured, well, let's we'll take another shot at it, and managed to get through the security with the books, and uh, said Clinton was very interested. But then, of course, he was very upset because uh, later Clinton. Uh, made this statement uh, that you know he he sort of poo pooed UFOs and I know Paul Davis I was in contact with him was very upset about what uh, what Clinton had said where Clinton had said he had seen the Roswell files and uh, he pulled them and really didn't believe there was a, a UFO involved. Well, uh, we have to take our final break of the night, Grant. But when we come back, I, I want to ask you about a, a few other things, uh, including Walt Disney and then how he played into the idea of disclosure. But uh, we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Interrupt this dance music to bring you a special bulletin. Reports are coming in of giant metal cylinders landing on the outskirts of major American cities. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. I felt like I was on a spaceship. And, uh... I'm not sure what to do with my hands. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Matt Moniz, Matt Costa, and Jeff Belanger. And we are talking to Grant Cameron, who runs the website presidentialufo.com. Uh, check it out. It's linked up right on spookysouthcoast.com. Uh, just a fascinating number of articles there uh, about pretty much every president from Truman on having some sort of correlation with this UFO phenomenon. Uh, and you definitely want to get on there and check out some of these experiences uh, that they've had uh, with Carter and Reagan and some of the uh, information that was passed on to, to Truman and Eisenhower. But uh, one, one story, Grant, that I found on your website that I found was really interesting is, you know, we're talking about how we want disclosure. And it seemed like back in the, uh, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, the United States Air Force was trying to be able to get some of this information out there. And they wanted to use Walt Disney as a means to get it out to the general public. Yeah, they've done, they've done this a number of times. It was 50, 55, 56 when 
according to Kimball, who was one of the uh, animators for Disney, and Kimball was really into UFOs, uh, Kimball tells the story that Walt Disney was approached in, in 1955 or 1956, was asked to do a UFO film for the U.S. Air Force, and he had done a number of uh, documentaries for the U.S. military during World War II, agreed to do the documentary and was offered film footage, all this kind of stuff, live film footage that he could in, include in the documentary. And at the last minute, they pulled all the film footage, and uh, Disney actually did do a documentary. And uh, this is something I've been chasing for a number of years. It was actually shown at the 1979 MUFON conference. And I've been everywhere, and uh, Stan Friedman talks about seeing the documentary. It was put in at the last minute, so it's not in the proceedings, this sort of stuff. But the, the actual documentary, without all the film footage, was stuck in, it was shown at the 1979 MUFON uh, Symposium. Uh, there is actually a guy, this is not the first time or the last time they've done this, uh, there is actually a guy still around, Robert Emenager, and uh, Angela Joyner and myself uh, have been working with Bob to sort of re, uh, rewrite his whole story. And his story, he was a, a film guy in Los Angeles, and this was during the, the Nixon administration when he was contacted. He and Alan Sandler, who had uh, done a number of documentaries for the U.S. military, were contacted and were offered uh, film footage, were given complete access to all the Blue Book uh, directors, uh, complete open door to everything that they wanted. The only thing that happened there is that the main film that they had, which was uh, a story that they were being told by the U.S. military that uh, a UFO had landed at Haldeman Air Force Base, which was on film, uh, was offered to them to be put in, and at the last minute they pulled the film, and it had to be returned back to the Pentagon, to Bill Coleman at the Pentagon. And there's actually, if you've seen the documentary, it was done in 1974, and Bill, uh, Robert Emenegger has confirmed this, there is a little bit more than four seconds of the actual Holman Air Force landing. It is a landing where the UFOs uh, landed, the aliens got out, they greeted uh, military officials, they walked on the tarmac, and Bob talks about actually being on the base, going to the buildings where the where the meetings took place, uh, and very fascinating story that that he still tells. He told us at the X conference this year, and uh, it's it, there's even a possibility. Angela and I are working on. Uh, there is one top secret film that they had, which uh, was taken out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, where UFOs uh, surrounded a missile that was being launched from Vandenberg. And uh, this film is a top-secret film. And as far as Bob thought, they still have the film. It, it never was returned. So we are in, at present actually looking for this film that was uh, released to Bob Emnegger. So this is the kind of thing they do from time to time. They they sort of stick stuff in there. And I guess my that impression is they, they really don't want people getting stuck back in 1947. They want to sort of slowly leak, keep, keep it going, slowly leak the material to, to uh, update people as to what's going on. But nobody actually has anything that they can actually go to the bank with. Uh, the Vandenberg film uh, with the missile has already been released. That's already out on YouTube. Uh, that may be the is that is that the one? There's there's one where they shot it down. There's yes. uh, I think Jacobs was the guy's name. Right. And this I think was a different film. Uh, the way uh, Bob described, uh, there was no. They did not shoot the missile down. It was just tracking this missile. This was a. Uh, I think uh, 1966 film, and it had uh, uh, the head of Blue Book, his name on there, 
it was marked top secret, and uh, it, it's. Uh, I'll have to look on YouTube to see if it's uh, showed to Bob. But Bob did see that footage. He, oh. he said he didn't see the Holman footage. It was seen by other people uh, working on the uh, on the documentary. He didn't see it, but he did see the one out of the the Vandenberg, and he was offered all sorts of film footage, and they were sort of offered everything. And then in 1983, they were contacted again. Uh, he was friends with Bob Haldeman, who was uh, chief of staff for Reagan, and uh, he was contacted in 83 by a guy who was Ronald Reagan's first uh, film uh, agent who had become a general and was uh, in charge of all the film at Norton Air Force Base. And they, during that one, they were offered a second documentary. And at that point, M. Ager had sort of caught on, and he said, is Ronald Reagan behind us? Why do you want us to do the documentary? And that one fell apart. Uh, J. Allen Hynek was involved. Jacques Vallée was involved in that. And the general was basically saying to the guy who was running the vault or in charge of pulling the film, I want you to pull all the film. And the guy said, sorry, general, you're going to have to give me a request. And he said, I'll have your ass. I want all the UFO film out. And it was to be given to J. Allen Hynek and Bob Emmenegger to do another documentary in 1983. So this kind of thing where they're leaking footage and this kind of stuff, goes on uh, fairly oh. fairly often. Grant, we're, we're just about out of time, so uh, I just want to ask you one final question here in the last uh, about minute and a half we have, and that's, you know, both candidates, Barack Obama, John McCain, both of them have uh, kind of really avoided the UFO issue. Uh, Obama kind of really doesn't like it to, to be discussed. Do you think either one of these candidates, if they become elected president, will get us any closer dis- to disclosure? No, because uh, elections is all about uh, getting elected. It's got nothing to do with issues. It's an think, important issue, but uh, it's not going to help them. Neither of them will do anything. I think our the only best way they're going to do anything is if we corner them and pressure them. That's I think our best shot actually is to, to get George W. Bush now that he's you know, only in his last remaining months. and Definitely. he's He really can't lose any popularity right. points out Lame of it. Lame duck, so why not? Why not shock the world and do it? Put it know? all out there. Yeah, right. if you can if you can get to him, you have to be able to get to him though. You George, gotta be able to get the question. Oh, it's easy. Oh, it's easy. He we'll listens just, to yeah. the show every week. Yeah, George, let us in for an investigation <laughs> and talk about the go. UFOs. Thank you so there much you for joining us tonight, Grant, and hopefully we'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks and for your that, interest. And everybody will keep checking out presidentialufo.com, especially as the election nears closer. So we'd like Thanks. to thank all of our guests for joining us tonight. Thank you to Grant Cameron. Thank you to Jeff Belanger for making the drive here all the way from Ghost Village. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Great to see you guys again. Come back anytime. All right. All right, so until next week when we talk about the anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill case, we're going to call it UFO Abductions Then and Now. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating night where we're going to talk about some of the older cases and some of the more current ones. What's going on? Why is this phenomenon still taking place? We'll explore that next week uh, right here at 10 o'clock on WBSM and streaming live on SpookySouthCoast.com and WBSM.com as well. So until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Jeff, we want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it doesn't.